A few miles down the Tigris from Baghdad, a great arch stands alone in the countryside. This is the Taki Kasra, one of the last remaining structures of the Persian city of Tesaphon. Its origins are lost to history. Its local name suggests it was built for the Sasanian King of Kings, or Shahanshah Khosro, to commemorate a victory over the Eastern Roman or Byzantine Empire in the 6th century. Other sources date it as far back as the reign of Shapur, who defeated the Roman Emperor Valerian in 250 AD. In the millennia since the arch was built, histories were lost, empires rose and fell. And still it stood, far taller and more graceful than anything any other engineer would build until the modern era. And we can only wonder how the early engineers who designed the structure planned its shape. How did they show Khosrow or Shapur their unique and revolutionary idea? Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Tim Sheehan. And I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. In this week's episode, we're talking to our episode partner Maplesoft about tools for thinking, the intellectual methods and physical tools engineers have used throughout history to work through their ideas and prove their viability. One thing those ancient engineers didn't do is use anything like modern mathematics or calculus. These approaches weren't invented until the era of Leibniz and Hooke, at least a thousand years later. But the arch's shape perhaps tells the story for us. It is an inverted catenary. It mirrors the curve formed by a chain hanging between two points. As this shape is determined by the action of gravity, it may have helped them develop a form that could stay strong while empires fell. Perhaps those early engineers literally hung a chain from posts moving them closer and further apart until they settled on a shape that the Shahanshah would like and then building a scale model to show how the arch would stand. More than 3,000 miles away, another catenary, the Clifton Suspension Bridge, spans another river, the Avon. Unlike those unnamed Sasanians, the designer of this bridge, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, had the advantage of new tools. He had the calculus developed by Leibniz and Hook. And he had paper. By some accounts, paper was itself the result of another ancient epochal battle between empires, when an Abbasid army and the Tang dynasty clashed at Talas in 751 AD. After the defeat of the Chinese, the Arabs' prisoners included a handful of papermakers who they took back west and put to work. Although now it's largely believed that Talas was little more than a skirmish, and paper technology travelled more slowly and piecemeal along the Silk Road. How did Brunel combine these intellectual and practical innovations? How did he use these tools to build a catenary curve that matches the grace of Taki Kizra? Brunel was doing engineering calculations with nothing more than paper, a quill pen, presumably, and a pot of ink. His original calculation notebooks are still lovingly preserved at the University of Bristol. What strikes me about his notebooks was he built these amazing feats of engineering, such as the Clifton Suspension Bridge, using nothing more than the diagrams he drew on paper and the calculations he did in his notebooks. So the Clifton Suspension Bridge, I've seen the original calculation notebooks for that. It's a catenary bridge, so there's a chain which forms the catenary. There are the rods which connect the catenary to the actual bridge. To work out the length 
of the catenary chain and the height of the rods, he actually did calculus. It's right there in his original calculation notebooks. So he derived the equations of a catenary using concept and calculus. He then substituted in numerical values to calculate the length of the chain and the height of the rods. And he was doing this back in the 1850s. Throughout history, engineers, mathematicians, and all those who work with numbers have invented tools to speed up their work. The tools and theories they use feed off each other. A new tool makes it possible to work with numbers in new ways, and the theories produced from that more efficient mental labour allows for the development of new tools. One of the earliest tools for working with numbers was developed by another empire of the Middle Eastern Fertile Crescent, the Sumerians, as much as five millennia ago. The approach to counting they developed is still used around the world every minute of the day. By tapping your thumb against each of the three bones on the four fingers of the same hand, you can easily keep track of a count up to 12. Folding the fingers and thumb of the other hand lets you keep track of multiples of 12, up to a total of 60. Those early agricultural empires were concerned with fractions and seasons. A number system made up of multiples of 12s and 5s is easy to divide in many ways. It is so useful that today, the base 60 number system derived from that counting system remains in use in our seconds, minutes, hours and months. But what do you do when you need to count with much more precision to much higher numbers? How can you ensure an army of tens of thousands can be fed for a year's long campaign? Or calculate how many cabbages you can grow on a vast estate and how many ships will be needed on what days to transport them at a steady rate to merchants in cities across a multi-continent empire. The abacus, a simple mechanism of beads and rods, refined in civilizations around the world over thousands of years, allows users to count into the billions on a handheld device. It can be used to add and subtract, to multiply and divide, and to find square and cubic roots. Other tools allow for even more complex calculations. The Antikythera mechanism, an ancient Greek analogue computer, is thought to have allowed users to track the movements of the heavens over decades. Researchers studying the machine have used both physical examination of the device and models of the maths available to its designers to develop ideas on how it may have been put together and used. All of these devices have some common characteristics. They're designed with practical applications in mind. They take some of the mental labour of working with numbers away. Without added complexity that introduces new mental labour. In the thousand or so years after the fall of Persia and of the Western Roman Empire, society became exponentially more complicated. New tools allowed for more complex thinking. And more complex thinking allowed for more advanced tools. Paper developed in China and used thousands of years later by Brunel allowed mathematicians to develop and share advanced ways of working with numbers. Vellum was rare and expensive. A book written on vellum would require the soft skin from the bellies of many herds of animals. Scribes had to plan what they would write before they set to work. It was rough, making the act of writing laborious. While writing on paper feels frictionless you can quickly jot down as many ideas as you like. And share them around the world. As Newton wrote to Hook, throwing shade at his diminutive rival, ideas could be developed by thinkers standing on the shoulders of giants. 
precise calculation allowed for the development of more reliable metallurgy. Which, along with his paper notebooks and the calculus he performed in them, allowed Brunel to design structures like the Clifton Suspension Bridge. But Brunel was working at the limits of that tool for thinking. He was actually a contemporary of Charles Babbage. And it's funny, um, back in the 1800s, those two were contemporaries. They lived and worked in England at the same time. Charles Babbage was a mechanical engineer who came up with the concept of the analytical engine. So mechanical computer based upon gears, mechanical devices for doing uh, computation. And it's funny, the analytical engine actually had all of the basic uh, concepts that we still use in modern computers, such as storage, arithmetic processing units, for loops, and so on. He never got to build the analytical engine, but what he came up with, with was the framework for modern electronic computers. As Babbage was developing his ideas for a computational device, his peers were working on ways that device could be used. One such was Ada Lovelace, who showed how the device could be used for something other than pure calculation, writing one of the first algorithms to be performed by the analytical engine. If Babbage was the father of computer hardware, Lovelace was the mother of computer software. But it was much later, only at the time of Turing, that these ideas came fully to fruition. It really took another 100 years for the work that Charles Babbage was doing with computation and the work that Brunel was doing with engineering calculations to collide. It was only in the 1940s and 50s that first computers, electronic computers, started being developed. And progress, even then, took decades. That was when IBM started developing the first uh, mechanical electronic computers. Back then, people used to write programs using punch cards. Punch cards evolved into assembly language. Assembly language evolved into high-level programming languages like Fortran, which I think was actually developed in the 1950s. And that eventually led to the development of numerical libraries some of which are still being used today. Uh, High-level computer applications for doing engineering computation and modern application software. Well into the 1970s, the sort of complex calculations used by academic mathematicians required room-sized machines. Generations of their more practical number-working peers, like engineers, would still rely on pen, paper and slide rule to get their work done. A key step in the widespread use of these new tools came in the late 1970s when two professors at the University of Waterloo developed Maple. Back then, computer algebra tools ran on mainframe computers. So these big unwieldy machines that sat in a large office. But back in the late 70s, early 80s, these new microcomputers started hitting the streets and they were cheaper and more widely available. So Keith Geddes and Gaston Gonnet just wanted to make uh, computer algebra tools available to more people. They were frustrated for themselves and for their students. 
accessing the mainframe needed to perform calculations, needed booking and connecting over a 56k line. Maple, running on the desk scale computers of the day, would let students and researchers access similar tools whenever they needed. It would reduce the friction of performing complex calculations, allowing these academic users to focus on developing new ideas rather than being bogged down in the legwork of calculation or worse, waiting for a slot on the mainframe to be available. As two professors getting together, realising that uh, there was a need in math education for a tool to help with, uh, with calculations and uh, setting out to create that tool. And uh, Maple was, was born, quickly was, was adopted uh, across universities uh, around the globe. And to today, that's, that's still a, a really important part of our, of our user base, of our market. So today, uh, Maple, uh, our flagship product, is available in, uh, in, uh, in 90, over 90% of technical universities around the world. So um, a lot of reach there, a lot of, uh, a lot of people that, uh, that take advantage of our tools to, uh, to help with maths, to uh, help with uh, mathematical concepts, help uh, get more insights, help further understanding, and, and, and generally make, make math a more, more, ex more enjoyable experience. That was Samir Khan and Laurent Bernardin. Laurent first worked at Maplesoft in the 1990s, interning with the company one summer before returning to university in Zurich to complete his PhD. He returned after completing his research as a developer and is now the company's CEO. And Samir is a product manager at the company, responsible for a new product, Mapleflow, that seeks to take the computational power of Maple and present it in a way that allows other number workers Engineers of all kinds, architects, product designers, production managers working with complex supply chains. To use these tools in a way that suits their work. Maple became commercialised in 1985. That was when Waterloo Maple was first built formed to distribute this new computer algebra tool. It started being made available at more universities, uh, companies started buying it. The interface went through several iterations. It became more usable. There were interactive plots. You can now write documentation. And, and that's eventually evolved into the spectrum of software tools that MapleSoft provide today. When the original versions of Maple came out, there was no Windows. No mice, no virtual desktop, all folders. Just a command line. And for the original users of Maple, as for many academics and mathematicians today, that was just fine. There was um, simply command line inputs on a DOS screen. That's all it was. So it was a lot more utilitarian. And it's funny enough, we still have many people who like using Maple that way. There's still a mode in the modern software tool which imitates the design metaphor of early DOS prompts, for example. So you just see lines of code, you execute it, you see the results. But as we've seen, tools evolve to suit users. Sumerian farmers, priests and tax collectors could all work quite well, just counting on their fingers. 
while the civil servants and generals of the Chinese and Roman empires needed abacuses to work with much higher numbers and much more precision, Sasanian architects could design a graceful arch with just a chain and two posts. While Brunel needed the work of earlier scholars and masses of paper to build his bridge, today's tools for thinking must also be adapted to users' ways of working. Different tools have different design intents. Some tools are designed for programmers, such as code development environments like Visual Studio. Some environments are aimed at mathematicians, people, people who need precise control over the mathematical structure of their equations. And some environments are designed for engineers who simply want to throw down a few equations on a virtual whiteboard and manipulate them and get results. That insight has driven the development of Maple Flow. It's designed to take the power of the Maple computational engine and present it in a two-dimensional environment, like that of Brunel's notebooks or whiteboard. Our design goals was really to make the calculations quick to create, quick to work with, intuitive to, to work with. We're kind of working in comparison to our other product, um, Maple, which is more like a, a Word document or something with content created from the top to the bottom. With MapleFlow, we wanted to be able to just throw content into the document at any location and not have to worry too much about the alignment of things or kind of working from top to bottom, being able to kind of jump around in your document. And that's allowed by having this kind of 2D grid arrangement of the whiteboard. The Maple product is intended more for the academic market and MapleFlow is intended more for an engineering market that's looking you know, to work quickly, get something that they can show people in a quick amount of time. That was? Margaret Hinchcliffe. I work for MapleSoft in Waterloo, Ontario. I'm currently a senior GUI developer for MapleSoft. I'm working on the MapleFlow project. MapleFlow is by no means the first tool for working with numbers in a graphical environment. Many of us will remember tools like Lotus123 or use modern alternatives like Microsoft Excel or Google Sheets. A lot of organisations essentially run all of their business processes through spreadsheets like this. But there are distinct flaws to this approach. One is that it doesn't allow you to show your calculations. Another is that these use complex environments developed over decades attempt to cater for every potential use. And instead of being a tool for thinking, become an obstacle for thinking constantly interrupting a user by making them perform the menial mental labour of working within a spool of different improvements. Excel is a, is a great tool for capturing data and, and working with data tables. It's, it's not a great tool for, for engineering. So where, where Maple differs is that uh, Maple allows you to, just like a, a paper notebook, capture your calculations capture the process of your thinking from, from start to end, allows you to capture your calculations in equation form, equations that look the same and are, are just as accessible and just as visible and readable as, as when you write them down on paper. But of course, you have the, uh, the computational power at your disposal, so you don't have to do all the relations by hand. You, you, get, you get support to make sure that uh, you get
get through the calculations faster and you get support to make sure that you don't make mistakes. And uh, when you compare it to what you do in Excel in particular, in Excel, you, you also you've, you enter formulas, but those formulas, they're kind of cryptic, right? They're behind, uh, they're, they're hidden and they are, they are like a one dimensional string of operations that is it's very hard to, to decipher and, and really decide whether you got it right or not. So like we were all told at school, show you're working. Whether in a raw DOS-like environment or in MapleFlow, Maple users can show every step in their argument, seeing for themselves and showing their colleagues and customers how they reach their conclusions. But it also seeks to make it much easier to focus on constructing that argument. At the same time in the 1970s, that computing power was moving from mainframes to microcomputers. Psychologists were investigating how we can think efficiently. One was Mihai Chexin Mihai, who coined the term flow state. That's the idea that by controlling our environment, freeing ourselves from distraction, and splitting tasks into discrete units, which each deliver their own reward, we can access a state of intense focus, not aware of anything else beyond the task. It's something we can experience when cooking a meal. Imagine making a sofrito, the flavour base of dishes across the Mediterranean and Latin culinary universe. You collect your ingredients. Carrots, celery, onions, perhaps peppers, or garlic or herbs. Clear and prepare your workspace. And start slicing. Each precise slice delivers a little hit of satisfaction. Without being fully conscious of your end goal or of the time passing. You soon find yourself with the basis for a delicious ragu. That approach is now almost as widespread as the microcomputer or PC. It's used in sports. In writing. And in software development. And its evil twin, Hyperfocus, is used to design digital products that keep us glued to a screen. Delivering subscription revenues or user metrics for advertisers. The infinite scrolling of social networks. Or the carefully designed skill trees and crafting mechanics of role-playing games. I actually have an addictive personality. I get addicted to things really easily. It might be salted caramel popcorn, or it might be the World of Warcraft. I remember when I started playing the World of Warcraft, I became addicted and I played nothing but the World of Warcraft for the next month or so. I was even forgetting to eat or sleep. The World of Warcraft is fantastic because it's designed for, for people like me. So there's constant stimulation, it looks pretty, you can do complex things, but the game mechanics are very, very simple. Now, those concepts are actually reproduced in many other software tools. So something I've become addicted to recently, and I'm not proud of this, is TikTok. I like scrolling through the videos, seeing new things all the time, this constant stimulation. The challenge Samir and his colleagues set themselves was to turn these addictive qualities to good. To make the tiny dopamine hits you get from seeing a new video of a cute kitten trying to wear a melon peel as a hat or of a guy blissfully skateboarding to work. Or of gradually collecting the materials to craft the shiny new virtual axe. And use that satisfaction to deliver useful work to achieve flow state. Game mechanics, the way that you interact with TikTok is very, very simple. I think we can take some of the lessons from tools like World of Warcraft, 
from social media and actually translate those into calculation tools. The key words for me are that you have to make the game mechanics of calculation software simple. So there have to be a few simple rules. You have to learn some basic grammar before you can use the software. But based upon those simple rules, you have to be able to do complex things, solve real problems. You have to remove the cognitive overhead from using engineering calculation software. I think the, the challenge we've come up with the most is just making the, the typical tasks that people want to do the most and make those the most immediate. So really focusing on, you know, how many keystrokes do they need to do this task or how, how many mouse clicks do they need to do? So MapleFlow is designed to be effortless and intuitive. Like paper, it's frictionless and gives you space to try out and share ideas. And if you want to type text, you can just start typing text. Or if you, if you want to start doing math or creating plots or dropping in images to fill out your document, those should just be immediately available. That ease of use and flexibility means MapleFlow can be used anywhere number work is done. We have customers from, from aerospace trying to land robots on, the, on Mars. We have customers in automotive trying to design new car engines, uh, designing uh, automated factories for, uh, for producing these, these cars. We have customers in, uh, in manufacturing. We have uh, customers in consumer products. But even clicking and dragging with a mouse is too distracting for Samir. He and Margaret and the rest of the MapleSoft team want to get even closer to the experience of jotting ideas down on a whiteboard. But doing that requires even better tools. There's a certain tactile feedback to paper that you can't get from a spreadsheet or a programming tool. And I want to reproduce that design metaphor uh, on a computer. So we've taken the first step with having a virtual whiteboard, but MapleFlow still relies on keyboard and mouse input. The next step is making use of modern advances in stylus and electronic pen input, turning handwritten equations into something computers can understand. It's actually pretty difficult because there's inherent ambiguity in mathematics and you need to remove that ambiguity. So for example, if you take something like F open brackets, X close brackets, what does that actually mean? Well, it depends on the context. It could mean F is multiplied by whatever's in the brackets, X, or it could mean a function application instead. There are many instances like that in mathematics where you need context and understanding to decipher. Additionally, equations are 2D. <laughs> they go from side to side and they go up and down, whereas handwritten text only goes from side to side. Traditionally, we've needed humans to do that interpretation, and we've been able to do that quite well. It'd be interesting to see if we can take advantage of modern advances in deep learning and AI to imitate what humans are doing in interpreting handwritten mathematics.
Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own epoch-defying revelation is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Maplesoft. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.